Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's show, we hear from the master of the short story himself, George Saunders. His only novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the Booker Prize in 2017, but it's the short story form that Saunders really reigns over. And it's not just his storytelling for which he's known, but his deep exploration and clear explanation of the mechanics of how to spin an effective yarn, especially in a limited number of pages. His 2021 book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, examined what makes great stories work and how they can influence us. It created somewhat of a book version of his famed fiction writing course at Syracuse University. His new short story collection, Liberation Day, flaunts this prowess. Love Letter is a missive from grandfather to grandson in a not-too-distant future, one in which fraught politics have become insurmountable chasms. In the titular Liberation Day story, individuals have been subjugated into performing storytellers for the ominous company. The book's nine tightly constructed tales are underpinned by a sense of dystopia and often the absurd. Though varied in their style and themes, at the heart of each is an exploration of human interaction and musings on what it means to live alongside one another as we grapple with our own complicated lives. George, it's wonderful to have you on the programme today. Thanks for thanks for coming in on the eve of, well, I expect you might have done it by the time this programme goes out, but uh, an extensive tour of the United States, Spinal Tap style, obviously. <laughs> and I wanted to... up to 11 in my own way. OK, yeah, yeah. we like that. Um, I wanted to ask you first, I was mulling on the way in whether I should ask you what, the, what was the easiest and what was the hardest of these stories to write. And I thought you'd expect me to ask you what was the hardest because I must must give the best answer. <laughs> so, which was the hardest out of these the stories in Liberation Day to to get done? There's one called a a place a thing at work a thing mm-hmm. at work. It was hard because it's a for me it's a little toned down just a slight bit. There's some internal monologues, but they're a little somewhat quiet. And so I had a little bit of a hard time finding out what was the what was I offering in that story. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not particularly voice. And then late in the game, there was kind of a Rapid fire cause and effect thing that happened. I said, okay, that's what that's what that's the weird thing about this story. So that one was tough, but mostly they're equally tough. You know, it's kind of like at this point, I know the the process, which is you write for a while happily. You know, this is going to be so easy, and then it locks up mm-hmm. for about a, for two or three months while the story decides what it wants to be, and then you go ahead. So at this point, it's kind of uh, in a certain way, the harder it is, the happier I am because that means. The story is baking. You know, there's this great quote, okay. uh, Einstein said, uh, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So if you have an idea about a story, if you just do that, it's a drag. So you, you're waiting for the story to kind of rebel a little bit and say, no, you're underestimating me. Sit there until you figure it out. And so when that happens, you, you know the story is going to be surprising to you, the writer, which is the, the goal. So some of the harder ones... You said they're all equally hard in a way, yeah. but some of the ones that you know have a memorable sticking point where mm-hmm. you're sat at your desk, whatever, are those the ones that sometimes seem to bear the most fruit in the reading back of them exactly. as they, they age over? Yeah, them. it's kind of the Houdini thing. You know, if Houdini said, look, I have a, a, a small piece of string on my hand, well, that's not... <laughs> but if he really gets himself into a mess, and even if he starts to panic a little bit, that's great, because then if he gets out, it's amazing. So in this book, there was a story called Ghoul that I started out just trying to imitate the voice of my first book, just kind of a mm-hmm. silly kind of sci-fi voice. And I got myself into a mess where I couldn't really figure out how to how to get out of it in the required number of pages. So that was fun. And it was, you know, definitely was sweaty. 
writing a little bit. Because what I'm hoping is that I can start a story in a real silly-ass place. That's a technical term, silly-ass. And, and, uh, <laughs> Don't get highfalutin on this part. Yeah, <laughs> the theory. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you, you start there, and then the goal is that in the end it's going to be, I always think classic, but what I mean is no matter who you are, the story's going to speak to you about the things that matter to you, even though it started in a crazy place. So that one was hard to get hard to find a kind of universal meaning in it mm -hmm. for all the strangeness. But the voice in Ghoul is, is phenomenal. It's, it's, it, all of these stories jump off the page, and I found them deeply memorable as well. I can mm -hmm. remember what happened, and I can remember the character's tones of voice, oh, and they're real kind of, yeah, they're like that thing, you stare at the sun and you can see the imprint of it on your eye, on your eyelid. Oh. You know what I mean? They're, they're very much That's like that. That's going on the so, cover of the paperback right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's... It's got, it's really got, you know, it, it leaps off the page. It's beautiful stuff. And that is a tough i mean i mean the, the 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 tone of voice that the narrator brian has also by the way i love all your character the the, the van ordinaire names of your characters yeah. you're gonna get the, pick, you're gonna get nothing from the name such as Todd, yeah, brian Jeff, yeah right Kyle. yeah they're not leading you anyway mm. apart from maybe everyone's as ordinary as right, these right. guys right but that's that, that the, the sort of high wire act if you like of that of carrying off that tone of voice for that amount of pages I wonder what that's like. If you if you have to kind of slot into a certain mode of thinking and of maybe impersonating Brian and his, and right his buddies. Yeah, impersonating. Yeah. So what you try to do, what I spend a lot of time on the first two or three pages to kind of get that voice started. And then it's kind of nice because you drop in the next day, you're reading two or three pages and it, the voice generates. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the secondary trick is if you can do it, it's nice for that voice to evolve a little bit. So as the character maybe in this in this book, they tend to come awake a little bit. They realize they've been lied to or that they're deceived. So if you can get that voice to expand over the course of the story, that's that's the goal. But I was always, as a kid, loved to do impersonations and voices. And so it's kind of channeling that a little bit. But once you've done it for two pages, then something in your brain just says, oh, I know that voice and I can I can keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. you can get into the you can get into the mode. I feel like... Is it? It's a bit like being a ghostwriter for a footballer or a musician or something, but you're inventing that footballer, that musician, right? Exactly you're inventing right. these characters that's and you just have to slot in and go, they, they're a bit like this. This oh, is how they sound. These are their points of view. Yeah. Something like that. That's it. And then, you know, what you're hopefully doing is you're finding ways to be poetic in that voice. So mm -hmm. to just do a crazy voice for no reason isn't so good. But with him especially, I found that he could... He was actually pretty good at describing places because he had such a, an unusual diction that he could just and keep adding clauses on. And uh, yeah. so, so it's interesting to just try to say, this is a strange voice. If I overflow it, it's going to be poetry, you know? Yeah. yeah. The story that gives the, the collection is titled Liberation Day. Jeremy is the main narrator of that. That's his job. He's one of these right. kind of pinion speakers on a speaking wall at some sort of... It's an amazing thing. Readers will have possibly read reviews of this and, know, and, and be familiar perhaps with some of the goings on of it. But again, part of his job is to go into a sort of throes of poetry. Right. And his sort of ordinary voice is very ordinary and descriptive of, of his circumstances, which is a single wall in a single room. Right. So did you have to sort of go from sort of naught to 100 miles an hour with that in yes. order to go and, into these? And the whole thing is he can be overflowed by somebody else against his will. He can, you know. He's got the pulse. Yeah, he's pulsed. So, yeah. yeah, so for me, that kind of thing is, it often comes out of a desire to do exactly what you said, which is I'd like to take this regular voice and have permission from the story to do something really exalted or mm -hmm. over the top. So often in this one and in a story called Escape from Spiderhead, mm -hmm. I just said, okay, just do it. Just start in a normal voice and then find an occasion to do some crazy, crazy talking. And then the idea is I'll figure out why later. You know, just do the thing you want to do. 
do the escalation from normal to crazy. And then it's almost like that's a plot generation thing because you say, well, why is he talking like this? The reader's thinking the same thing, so you're in communication with the reader. Then the job lies before you to explain it in a way that makes sense. So that's plot, you know. Yeah. But the trick, you know, for me, the trick is to start that first two or three pages really not knowing. Because if I know, it's kind of like, if I know, then you know that I know. And all I'm doing is condescending. You're sitting there and I'm pulling up this dump truck full of the manure of my ideas and dumping it on you, you know, and it's not very fun. But if I'm not sure, if I can write myself in the kind of a befuddlement state, then I know that you're right behind me going, what is he up to? This doesn't make sense. And I turn around and say, you know, this doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. Okay, hold on a second, you know. Okay. So then we're close together through the whole story. And if I... um Wherever it goes, you're going to stick with me because you feel you have a good companion. And just like on a road trip, if somebody says, I'm taking you on a road trip, don't ask questions and be quiet, you don't want to go. But if they're occasionally turning to you to express mutual consternation or concern, then you feel like you're a legitimate part of the trip. Yeah. yeah. I get that from these stories, that you are, you're the driver on this road trip, but you're also turning to your co-pilot your passengers and you're going wow look at the view i didn't expect it to be like this right. what do we do isn't it isn't autumn beautiful in this country mm. i pretended i'd been there before but actually i haven't that's right it feels like that does it feel like that when you're putting pen to paper it has to because yeah. if the other way is i know everything the ideas that i have in everyday life which are so facile those are all i have to work with who wants that you know i don't want it but in this mode where i'm not sure i use the term correctly but i think what i'm doing is is or any writer is doing is channeling the subconscious, whatever that is, some kind of deeper, harder to access, wiser part of ourselves, wittier part of ourselves. So if you're accessing that, you really can't know what's happening. It's telling you, you're not telling it. So it's a kind of a beautiful daily practice of just saying, the guy you are normally is not that smart. His ideas about politics yawn, you know, but this other person that you can get to is actually has something to teach you, you mm -hmm. know. So that's kind of, especially as you get older, because as you get older, you're your inclinations are to be sure, you know, you know, I've lived all this time. I know what's going on, you know, and to be reminded by your craft that you don't know. Gather anything. around children. Yeah, that, tell you how. Right. sit at my feet. And, <laughs> but to be reminded by your craft that you don't know anything yet is is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you mentioned politics. I'd like to talk about talk about that and the light if at all, I mean, the, the most explicit story is an epistolary story in the middle of the collection from a grandfather to his grandson. I guess it sounds like a, probably in America and probably in the near future. And probably um, it looks back year. on the yeah. last president of the United States. And that's the one that's most explicitly, I guess, about reasoning out of politics and the reasoning out of of not doing anything and the danger of doing something, right, I suppose, right. as well. Was that written in that kind of crazy period of Trump's administration? It was. It was, it was a few months before the 2016 election. And I made uh -huh. an exception to all my rules. You know, I've always said, you know, I don't write all explicitly don't about, do it about politics. Don't Right, right. <laughs> and I thought, I want to. You know, so that's an impulse I've learned to trust is if you really want to, just go ahead. And that's the one part of your life where you can totally indulge yourself. So I started out, the main thing was a kind of a, I felt the need to model a kind of tenderness. I don't have a grandchild, but I have daughters, you know, and mm -hmm. to say, you know, I'm really sorry that this is the America we're delivering to you. I'm deeply sorry about that. So the first draft was just him speaking to this imaginary grandson in a real intimate, tender, apologetic way, you know, and I felt good just to do that, actually, just to have it on the page. People who read the story said the same, that, well, it was nice to at least hear that elegiac feeling mm -hmm. expressed. But then since it's ostensibly a story, you have to let something else happen. So 
you write the first draft, and then I'm kind of watching to see where this guy wants to differ from me. And he is a little less active than I hope I will be in that situation. He's, he gets a little more quickly to the mindset that says, just keep your head down and enjoy your coffee. Enjoy the, the day. Don't worry about the outside world. So I hope I, don't, I won't succumb to that if it comes to it. Um, but then suddenly he's a character. And so over the story, he, I think his facade cracks just a little bit by the end. He starts to think, well, maybe I, I was too inactive, you know. Yeah. But I think sometimes in, you know, in times that are difficult... Just to hear somebody acknowledge it, you know, if you're if you and I are in a room or a little house and there's a wolves outside howling, and I say, "Isn't it a great day? Everything's going very well." You know, <laughs> that makes you more anxious actually because you think, "What?" You know. But yeah. if I say, "I'm really worried about the wolves," then at least we can start to kind of talk about it. So I think sometimes fiction has that function. Chekhov said it doesn't have to solve problems; it just has to formulate them correctly. So to have two human beings say, "This is going on, isn't it?" Yes, it is. That's that's not nothing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, talking of Chekhov, I read Liberation Day with a copy of A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, mm. sort of in my memory, in my left hand kind of thing, thinking about some of the things you'd written about the, the Russians, the novelists, that is, we should say, this isn't a positive You can kind of cross-check it and see if I, if I <laughs> yeah. did what I said you should do. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and it bears scrutiny, George <laughs> yeah, <yeah>. Saunders. <laughs> and a lot of that is about, I think you call it the physics of the story and the kind of strategizing of that. Yes. Is that something you're thinking about? Do you have a kind of chess set or a kind of murder wall in your, in your study, or does it just come with the flow? You know, I was an engineer to start with, and then mm -hmm. I got to writing late, and I felt a little outgunned. I, w I was in a writing program with a lot of Ivy League kids. So I tried f for a while to have theories about writing, you know, and none of them, I, they weren't sophisticated enough, and I couldn't, it didn't help me work. So in the end, I went back to the basics, which is, you know, you start a story with a relatively blank mind, mm -hmm. and then you start reading, and seven pages later, you're somewhere else. So I thought, well, the roots of everything, of criticism and also of production, have to be in there somewhere. If you track your mind as you're reading a story, you're going to find out where it means what it means, you know. If a story isn't working, you can identify the exact place where it stops working. Yeah. If a story is sexist or racist, you can identify the exact phrase where you felt that. So that's a really powerful tool. And you know, it's not, you can forget about the muse. You can forget. And you don't have to be an expert. That's any reader, presumably, exactly. right? Any reader you you kind of know when it's slipping or, you know, when it's tightening up. A hundred percent. If you've done, you know, I mean, if you've never read anything, maybe not. But if, you know, a normal reader absolutely has that power. So the, then the trick becomes noticing inflections of the mind. And then secondly, being able to articulate them. But it's a very powerful tool because you it's a method of teaching you to trust your own reactions. Yeah. You know, it's kind of scary stuff because you don't get to pull in the, you know, the sophomore year thematic tidbits. You just have to really say, how did it how did it affect you? Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Many of us will be aware that you teach at Syracuse University on the creative writing course. Does teaching make you a better writer? Does having to describe how one does it or maybe even how you yourself do it to I others? Think it does because, yeah. you, you know, you, with our we get 700 applications and we pick six students to come. So they're so good and you cannot BS. You, you can't go on autopilot. You can't coast on reputation. They don't really care. They, they want their work to improve. So the, that's one great thing. The other thing is you, you just get reminded that talent is eternal. You know, mm -hmm. as an older person, sometimes you think, oh, back in the days of, you know, the, everything's gone downhill since Fog Hat or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you're presented with this fresh crop of young people who are every bit as talented, maybe in a different flavor than we were in our generation. But it's very rejuvenating to say, oh, of course, of course, talent springs eternal. Of course it does. Mm -hmm. And then you get the opportunity of engaging with that talent 
I do a lot of line editing. That's kind of the main thing I do. And so you get to know a student a little bit. You line edit their work. You sit down and you try to kind of like, it's almost a kind of a, a psychological judo. You're trying to see what's obstructing them. Sometimes just praising what they do is really powerful to mm -hmm. say, this is a beautiful passage, you know. So it's really, it's just endlessly in interesting work. And as you get older, it's actually more interesting because you, you become aware of certain patterns in writers and you get a little bit of the confidence of feeling tender towards them. You know, when you're young, you might feel a little That's bit... That's a nice thing to feel. It, oh, it's yeah. so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I don't, I just really want them to succeed and mm -hmm. be happy. Whereas when I was younger, I might have been, why are you not writing better or are yeah. you trying to take my book contract? You know, but as you get older, you think, oh, you know, I really, I really, I see what you're trying to do and I would love to help you if I, if I can. And of course you can't always, but sometimes you can. Your tutors were Tobias Wolf and Doug Unger. Were you amazing, you know, phenomenal talents themselves? Did you find it easy to be line edited? Did you have to kind of break something to make it anew when you were when you were that age? The whole process was me. Uh, well, at that point, uh, not that age. I mean, yeah, I'd applied with one good story, and when I got there, I was so freaked out that I tightened up and I started doing Hemingway light, you know. And so the <laughs> that was uh, a rock. It was <laughs> Nick walked into the Walmart. It was pleasant, you know. And I, but I, I was so had so much anxiety and self doubt that I thought, well. I, I love Hemingway. I'll just do that, you know. So what they did for me was, I mean, in a nutshell, besides being very friendly and, and collegial and, and telling me I could be a writer, they ignored that work, basically. They didn't respond to it. I remember going to uh, the kind of culminating lunch with Doug. He'd read my thesis, that I, you know, 400-page thesis. Mm. And he basically said, yeah. We ex you know, he said, we expected really great things from you. And, well... You know, okay. and that, and I, I remember thinking, I can't believe he's saying that to me, you know, but it, the other voice was saying he's absolutely right. This is a dud of a book, you know, so sometimes just to be honestly non-reactive mm -hmm. for kids as ambitious as our students are, that's a real powerful thing because they don't want to be judged okay. You know, they want to blow you the top of your head off. Mm -hmm. And if they haven't done it, then they'll go right back to the workshop and figure it out, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's, it's much more kind of personal work than I would have thought at the beginning. You know yeah, I, mean? I like that. Yeah. I like the fact that you there's tenderness in it. I mean, I think that's the ultimate, I don't know, teacher pupil. It's clearly beyond that. But, you know, basically, wouldn't it be lovely if that was a key attribute of all of those power relationships or, you know, uh, age relationships? Yes. As well. yeah. it's and a, it's so much, you know, when I first started teaching, I, I think well, I, I shouldn't tell them what I really do when I work. I should <laughs> maintain a certain, I, I should always wear a really cool jacket to, you know, try to try to <laughs> subdue them by being so cool. And that lasts about a day. It's so, so much work, you know. Yeah. So then the, the move became just confess. You know, I had a shitty day at work. I'm, I'm, I'm blocked. I don't know why. I should know, but I don't. Or I had a great day, and here's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And you could see that they responded to that because they're desperate for the actual knowledge of it. And for me, it was so much nicer, too, just to say, I'm going to just be myself with them. I'm going to let them do what they want in mm -hmm. their work. I'm not responsible for it. I can guide it. So a lot of things in writing for me is, are about reducing anxiety, just the anxiety of creation, the anxiety of teaching. So kind of taking paths through that just make it more fun is actually the kind of the mantra, more fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the next collection. That's the title of the and next a, collection. And a t-shirt, which I'll send you. More fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to, to go back to the collection to ask about, about power, because there's mm. a lot of it wielded, but not a lot of it by, it seems to me, your characters. Mm. We mentioned Ghoul and we mentioned Liberation Day, the title story. And these are two kind of one sort of supernatural and one science fiction sort of ish. Mm. But throughout the collection, 
the people are wielding a, what little power they have, but I think they all live under the cosh and the knowledge or the cloud of a bigger power that they know is kind of kind of could come along and crush them and they live in fear of. Is that, it's not unique to this collection of stories from you, but what what is that? Is that a, a sort of subconscious preoccupation of yours? Is it just the human condition that you're talking about? I think, there? It's, I think it's both. For me, it's often just death. You know, that I mean, I, now I, I sometimes will say it's capitalism, which is also death but but um well it's also life i guess yeah. but so i think it's just a sense that we you know in these bodies in these minds we're led to believe in our own centrality and our own permanence and that we're kind of the star of this show that's going on around us i think it's totally natural and probably darwinian that we feel that way but it's all wrong you know and you know that when you get hit by the bus you know or when you're ill or someone you love dies that suddenly then you see oh that this preset that i have is almost designed to make me unhappy at some point, you know. So that's something that uh, I was a very death-obsessed kid, very death-aware somehow. So I think that is the um, the essential mystery for me. How do we we feel like we're here to love people and to love the whole experience and to be tender? It's happy. It's nice to do that. And yet at, at the end, there's something that we didn't know that, mm -hmm. that comes for us. And so I guess the thing is how do we live so that we can be joyful and happy and enjoy but not be deluded. That's the kind of spiritual challenge. So I think that finds its way into the stories. You know, you got somebody who's being tricked or being overpowered. They're pretty happy. They don't know it. And then suddenly they become aware of it. And then, then what do you do? You know, that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And also the power structures, the interpersonal power play between your characters. I'm thinking about a thing at work, but throughout the book and a mum of bold conscience, the mum of bold conscience, wielding the little power that they have, but wielding it against others. You know, the the mum who thinks who's like who'd like to be a children's author, but is kind of and is wondering if she's a good mother and maybe a good wife, but also kind of like can lord it over the what she thinks is homeless dudes. Right, right. There's a lot of this going on, and the the two women at work, Brenda and and Genevieve, this sort of what we might perhaps slightly sexistly call cattiness, but it's mm. just competitiveness. Right. Poor, those are so well drawn. Those yeah, those relationships. Well, some of it is just you know if. I think one of the ways to make a narrative compelling is to be honest about your own inclinations, you know. So the story where the hero strides proudly through the world never being weak is kind of, it's fun, <laughs> but it's, you know. So I just look into my own mind and, and, uh, and I worked at an office job for a long time. And just to see, you know, you have a narrative of being the nicest guy at work and I really shouldn't be here. I'm an artist. And then, you know, suddenly somebody comes for your job and you get really feral, you know? So yeah, right. so, so I think there's something uh, I, I love, for example, in Chekhov, where you'll see a character having contradictory impulses because you think, oh, yeah, that's me. And what a comfort it is for somebody to say, my mind is also a mess, you know? Mm -hmm. I also have competing impulses. So I actually think it's one of the hidden powers of fiction is just reassurance, like, yeah, of course it's like that for me too. Yeah. You know, it's tough down here, brother. You know, that kind of stuff. And seeing yourself in the least, perhaps, of, of glamorous characters is not bad for the... It's sort of bad for the ego, but sort of good for life life itself. <laughs> right, right, right. Now just just a feeling that you're not alone and, you know, that kind of... Uh, but I think that's how humor works too, is you say... Um, you know, there's two guys on an elevator and one of them farts. Well, they, they both know who did it. And so that's a rich moment. But and it's a comic moment, but it's also a moment of, of honesty. Are you going to say, yeah, terribly sorry, or are you going to just pretend not... it never happened? Yeah, yeah. So, so the to narrate that in the story is sort of like a, an import of, of a burst of honesty that I think is refreshing because the stress of everyday life for me is the, the denial of such 
ambiguity or, or mm. denialism. It's really hard to go through life being super cool. You know, you come into an interview, you're a little nervous. Your impulse is, I'm not nervous, but you yeah. are. So, uh, so I think fiction is kind of ultimately about a kind of frankness that is a risk. But then if you connect, it's beautiful, you know, to yeah. have to know that there's somewhere there's a reader that you don't know that you've just reassured with that elevator fart joke. <laughs> that's, 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 that's as close as I can get the power, you know. That's, yeah, finally, I thought I should, you could just share commonality it. with George Saunders. Yes, just when you, next time you're in the elevator, just don't, just, don't just fess up. <laughs> and you mentioned jokes. You, you, you said them. I've, I've, I've read interviews with you before. You've sort of talked about that as a very basic building block of, of what you do mm-hmm. or perhaps the most perfect uh, distillation of it in a certain way and comedy sketches as well right. and I can and I can kind of see that in that yeah. work it, it, it's, it's I guess it's short and sweet right, right. it's got right. the need for speed which your short stories I guess have as well yeah and in a sense the, the story and the joke are brothers or sisters because the you look at the book it's got four pages You're like huh so he's claiming he can do something in four pages mm. with the story if you read enough of them you'll know whether the joke landed or not, you know, whether the story worked. And if it doesn't, it's, it's disappointing. And if it does, it's a triumph. But it's not, you don't have to go very far before you, before you find out. And then also that kind of, at least in my engineering mind, makes all kinds of expectations about the inner working. So everything should be to purpose. Like in a joke, if you, you know, the duck walks into a bar and you get a 40-page digression about his childhood... And then you get to the punchline, you go, oh, you didn't need that. (laughs) I read a study once that said actually that they did a brain scan and people's brains process jokes, short poems, and short stories the same way, which is as soon as you're done, it assesses, kind of retro assesses for efficiency. So if it feels that there's a big uh, goiter in there, it doesn't land as hard. So so the the brevity, uh, it creates an aesthetic world basically with efficiency yeah. rising action everything to cause and this kind of thing yeah, yeah i love that that could be wrapped up in the neatness of a joke yeah and i wondered as well you've obviously written about the russians and the and the sort of perfection of those short stories and how they do their work mm-hmm. and land their punches i wondered whether you kind of go back to children's stories like fairy tales kids stuff mm-hmm. in order to kind of roll around in the kind of the, the f- kind of fresh fallen leaves of that simplicity, if yeah. indeed it is simplicity yes. that we're seeing there. Yeah, I have, I have, you know, seven or eight kids' books in my mind that that are just, like, there's one called Caps for Sale. Have you ever heard that one? It's just a guy who's selling caps, and he he stacks them up on his head, you right. know, and some monkeys come and take his hat, and he has to get them back, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and everything in there is so simple. And uh, I, I think simplicity is, is the key. With my students, you know, when we workshop one of their stories, I have kind of a requirement, which is first we have to do what I call the Hollywood version, which is, um, you know, for uh, for Scrooge, it's a bitter, greedy man is converted. Yeah, okay, you know? right. Yeah. Okay, the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch, exactly. Not the, not the same elevator <laughs> Yeah, that's a different, okay. different, different pitch. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if yeah. you can't do that, the simplicity is lacking in your story. Mm-hmm. So that's a really great first move because my thing is you shouldn't critique it unless you know what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes in workshop it can be just... Oh, I think you need more color red or, you know, uh, why don't you put in some more birds, which doesn't help anybody. But if you've already said, okay, this is the story at its platonic best, the elevator pitch, then we can sort of start assessing it for efficiency and speed and rising action. And that. So it's kind of a good, it's a little bit sticky, but once you do that, the the path gets kind of clear on how you could actually help the person. Right. Yeah. So you can see the, you help people, you can see the horizon. A little you're, bit. you're seeing the story at its best. Yeah. And then, and then if you say, well, you should probably cut page three. It doesn't feel like a violation. It feels like you're trying to get the story to rise to its own potential. As is seen on display throughout. 
It's time, sadly, for us to open the elevator doors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the good elevator. Yeah, the, the good not elevator. The bad one, not right. the one in the joke. No. George Saunders, thank you so much for your such time. A talking us through Liberation Day and everything else. You've got today. an amazing mind. Thank you for Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. And that is it for today's show. My thanks to George Saunders and his new book, Liberation Day, is published by Bloomsbury and is available now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung and Steph also edits the programme. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. 